Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. You know us for Nail the Mix, but today I'm here to tell you about Ultimate Drum Production, a brand new course that's going to completely transform the way you think about and record drums. You're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com to learn more. Welcome to the URM podcast. I'm A.L. Levy. Today I have a cool guest with me, someone who a lot of you guys already know, but if you don't, let me tell you a little bit about him. His name is John Douglas, and I've known this dude for a long, long time. He started as just uh, my brother's quiet friend who would sit in the corner and play with recording gear while my band did work, and then over the years turned into an incredible engineer and producer, musician, and just person who helps you get the job done. He's got work under his belt for TV. Uh, You know, he's worked on Star Wars Rebel, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, Squidbillies, uh, Rick and Morty, and all the way to Cannibal Corpse, uh, Steel Panther, even did a little additional engineering on Fallout Boys, Devil Driver. I mean, list goes on. He's worked on a ton of stuff. In addition to that, uh, he's also a great educator. He's done quite a few incredible courses for URM, like Pro Tools Fast Track, which is probably the most comprehensive Pro Tools course I've ever seen. Um, it's very, very different than the certifications. The certifications are kind of like, you know, they take you through the menus and don't really help you get much better. But this actually shows you how to go from not knowing anything to being good at Pro Tools. So great dude. And without much more introduction, I give you John Douglas. John Douglas, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. I'm I'm stoked to be here again. Uh Last time I was like all nervous and I hadn't talked to Joey before and I hadn't talked to Joel before and now I'm here and it's like uh, been editing on these podcasts and like, I don't know, I'm comfortable in the space now I feel like, so we'll see how it goes. Well, it has been almost three years since that last episode. Yeah. Um, and at that point- That we was were, in 2015. Yeah, it was. And we were mostly talking about drum editing and kind of just like how to be a good intern how to be a good assistant. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, things have kind of changed a little bit since then, but, uh, your room looks really, really nice. Um, thanks. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, I think one of the things, um, you know, talking to people on, uh, on, on Skype doing the one-on-ones people, um, or doing the one-on-ones with, uh, the enhanced students, um, it's been cool to kind of see other people who have, uh, you know, turned their bedroom setups into something that really looks legit. Um, and it really doesn't take all that much. I mean, it takes a little time to kind of get your stuff together. But, uh, you know, when, when I see other dudes in Atlanta, um, like uh, Corey Batista or something, who have come a really long way in a short amount of time and kind of like uh, have have their schedules booked up, um, or like uh, Anthony Potenza, another cool dude who's like, Mm-hmm. just kind of like stumbled off on a, a really cool space and like really turned it into something going from zero to 60 really fast. Um, and, do you uh, know the story of Anthony Potenza, by the way, with, as in 
relation to URM. Uh, I don't know if he's ever told you or if I told you, but I met that kid when he was 14. Oh, really? Um, wow. He, yeah, he came to the first ever boot camp in Cleveland in October of 2014, and his dad drove him from New York there. Wow. Him and his dad both came. And he was like the most engaged student at the thing. Like, he wanted to be in on everything that I yeah. was doing. Like, there were people like twice his age who were afraid to come up to the front and like try to run Pro Tools and stuff. And he was just in it, on it. And it was just like, wow, I hope this kid keeps it up. Fast yeah. forward. Fast forward, he's got his own studio. He's doing real well. He's starting to make some money at it. Yeah. He's not even 18 yet. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, I, f I feel like a lot of this is just um, being able to get past your own uh, insecurities and be able to put yourself out there um, in, in the kind of in the space that we find ourselves in on social media and with advertising and everybody kind of trying to get clients. Um, it, it seems like, you know, whenever the, the question of like, yeah, I feel like I'm doing some good mixes, but how do I actually get bands to come in? Um, it's just like, man, you got to put yourself out there because I've, I've I've been in those shoes for a long time of like, I know I have the skills to produce bands, but I'm the same kind of introverted guy who doesn't like to put himself out there that much. And, uh, you know, just getting comfortable with that um, and, and having enough confidence in what you've already done to be able to, to, to feel natural putting out a website or a resume or something that like lets the world know what it is that you do and, and feeling comfortable in that and saying, yeah, this is, this is my niche and uh, here's what I've done and I'm proud of it. Um, not just being like, yeah, I might make something good in the future or whatever. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, you've done quite a lot of great work that people should know about, but I completely understand the, the introverted thing. Cause I'm the same way too. Uh, I, I don't know that I've taught myself to get comfortable with the parts of this job that require you to be outgoing and I do my best, but I mean, still, even to this day, too much interaction with people still makes me tired. I still like after an hour or two of like interaction in person, I'm still like, man, I need to go to bed now. Right. I, I, <laughs> I have need the to exact go same, hide. Yeah. Yeah. I have that the exact hasn't same changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's just, um, it's comforting to me at least to, to be able to go on Skype and interact with all these people who are dealing with the exact same things and then watch some of them, you know, honestly, it, like interacting with some of these guys and they're doing like, they're working with more bands than I am or like being in charge of more projects than I am. And I'm like, wow, he's got, you know, I've, I've got something to learn from these guys that I'm supposed to be teaching. Um, so well, yeah, they're, we've they're, got some, we've got some students, man, who are uh, really starting to shine. Like, I don't know. Have you ever done a one-on-one -on -one with like Robin Lejean or whatever? Um, uh, not, maybe. or whatever. That's his name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I've done one with Robin. Um, but some of the other guys like, uh, um, Matisse Clavin and uh, yeah, Matthias. Yeah, Matthias. And Matt, um, sorry, sorry, Matt. <laughs> Matt actually won the uh, October Nail the Mix. Yeah, it was a contortionist contest. one, right? Yeah, contortionist one, and we flew him to the summit. Yeah. So, and we love him. I I heard his mix of that of that song, and I thought it was better than mine. So um, I was like, <laughs> you know, maybe I should check out that whole. Uh, 
that SonarWorks thing, and I did, and I really liked it. So, yeah, I mean, regardless of who it is and what where they're coming from, you know, um, I always feel like I can learn something from from these interactions. And even just like, you know, if, if you're an introverted guy, like getting out there and just interacting with people, whatever the, you know, whatever the situation is, is, is going to help you um, in the long run, just be more comfortable around people. Because that's, that's, that's ultimately what we're doing in the studio is trying to, you know, deal with other people. And, um, you know, especially if you like, I, I, I kind of got the um, introduction to this working at a, a commercial studio in Atlanta um, and it was just kind of thrown into it and you'd see high profile clients coming in every day. And, you know, the, the number one rule is just like, don't get starstruck and like get the job done right and get out of the way. Um, so if you can kind of embrace yep. that attitude towards it, regardless of like who you're working with, you know, um, make try to make everybody comfortable, treat everybody like a star. Um, and it'll, you know, you know, the thing about making people comfortable, though, that's interesting because uh, I feel like when someone has social anxiety and is introverted, they can make people feel uncomfortable without even trying. Oh, and yeah. that is one of the reasons for why making yourself be more social is so important because uh, you you yourself need to be comfortable so that other people feel comfortable because people pick up on vibes, whether, you know, on cues, also nonverbal cues all the time. And so I think that for people listening to this, if, you know, if you can relate and you haven't been to a URM meetup, we have chapters all over the world, literally all over the world. And many of them meet up once a month or once every two months. And from that, a lot of people have spun those off into real life friendships with people where people hang out all the time. Like we have a community here where you can meet people all over, no matter where you are, just about who are going through the same thing, are weirdos like you and genuinely help each other out. And I highly, highly suggest it. And I do know that there's quite a few people who have come to these meetups and through connections at these meetups have landed really good gigs. Like, for instance, Miami Dolphin landed the gig with uh, Kyle Black. John Maciel landed the, ki- the gig with Bo Burchell. That's because they came to URM meetups in L.A. when we were there for... I think we were doing sales in, in L.A., mm. and we did a meetup, and Bo and Kyle both came out, and so did those guys, and uh, I introduced them. And, you know, they they obviously didn't make a bad impression. Yeah. Or they made a good enough impression to get a chance, and then they didn't fuck up their chance. But point is, they came to the meetup yeah. and overcame the social anxiety. Right. Yeah, I think... I think uh you know, it, especially talking to well. First, I'll say a uh, shout out to those guys in particular, like Miami and John and and Nick, and like listening. Actually, like when I was editing those podcasts of of Nick and then the the triple podcast with John and mm-hmm. Miami, um, it was and one of those, Tyler and Tyler. That's right. Um, yeah. And it, it kind of brought back like just listening to those guys talk about how driven they are at the moment. Kind of brought me back to that mentality of like. Yeah, man, let's go out in there and kill it. Let's do some more good work. Like, I, you know, I've I've got enough stuff on my resume that I feel pretty comfortable like approaching most 
people about my work and saying, you know, this is what I do. Um, but I still feel that drive to keep growing and, and pushing beyond and, 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 you know, what, whatever's the next step. Um, so yeah, I mean, even listening to guys like that, starting out, just hearing the, the kind of fire and how much intensity they have for like, this is how dedicated I am. Like, I'm going to go hang out with Andrew Wade and help build him, help him build his studio for free for however many months. Like that's intense. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, hats off to those guys for making it work. Um, but it, but it is intense, it, but it's what I don't know. I agree though that it it inspires me to hear those stories because it makes it takes me back to before my band got signed when I would stay up all night printing CDs. Yeah. And, you, you know, we handed out 24,000 of those CDs that I printed. But just, you know, something that you don't do these days to get signed. But back in 2004, 2005, uh, well, not that many people did it either. I heard Disturbed <laughs> did that, too. Right. Well, um, there you but go. it takes me back to, like, those days of, like... I need to make something happen and I'm going to fucking make it happen and I'm going to do unreasonable things to make it happen that other people won't do. Right. Um, and I feel like as you become more successful, it's a natural human thing to let off the gas a little bit, to become complacent. I don't think that it's not, I don't judge people for that because it is so natural. Yeah. It, that's just what we do. So I think it's important to keep on being inspired by people who have that fire so that you can, wherever it is within you, you can tap into that. And whether it's by listening to someone that's super successful, like Gary Vee or a great producer who's got a great story or whoever, or guys who are first starting who, you know, takes you back to, when you feel like you had that fire. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, one of the other things I, I noticed talking to people, especially if they're not from like the U S or Canada, they're coming from a smaller market, um, or, or not like UK or, uh, you know, um, if they're coming from Eastern Europe or something like that, or, or somewhere in the middle East, it's like, what, um, like I was talking to a guy from, from Turkey the other day and, um, you know, it's like I want to get into working with modern metal producers, but there there just aren't any worth caring about in my area. It's like, well, you know, um, there's 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 ways to get to the people that you do care about, um, and I think there's a mentality shift that has to happen between like um, if you're if you're not around people that are doing it, so to speak. Um, if, if you're not around people who are in the, in the industry and making money as that's their sole or that's most of their income, or at least that's where they're striving to put themselves is in, in a place where they're doing that professionally. Um, like I remember back, back in those like 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, when you guys were negotiating record deal and, and me mm -hmm. and, uh, and Daniel and I were, were jamming down in the basement. Your Dan, brother. By, by the way, for people who are unaware, I've known John here for a very, very long time. And when he says Daniel, that's my younger brother. And they were in a band together. And so back when my band was first getting our record deal and establishing ourselves, John and Daniel would have their own band in the basement and would uh, do their own thing. Yeah, it was just like... I think especially looking back on that, like being able to 
watch you guys practice and watch you guys go through the process of making a record and um, you know replace members or um, kind of shift directions or whatever it was, just like big picture stuff that you would you know like signing a deal or all this stuff is just happening to these normal guys who I'm hanging out with. It's not like shifting away from the mentality of putting people on a pedestal and, and being starstruck by certain people. Um, you know, like it's funny, like now that I've have some credits under my belt and occasionally somebody will be like semi starstruck when they meet me. And I'm just like, that's, that's funny. And that's cool. And I'm flattered and all, but like, if you want to stay in this business you need to get past that because like, you're going to have to interact <laughs> with people like much more famous than me and, and do it, uh, a little more low key. Um, well, what's what's interesting about that is so it sounds like being around my band and seeing all that stuff happen made you kind of realize that it's real life and you know, these yeah, things do it, happen to real people. Yeah, it's not far fetched. You just have to put in the work. And I think there's it's you can listen to people say that as much as you want, but until you like know somebody personally and watch them go through that and watch them put in the work and actually see what's required um I, I feel like for me that was what really made the difference in terms of like okay i'm gonna go into workaholic mode for a little while i'm gonna spend a couple of years getting really good at my craft um i'm gonna get an internship and i'm gonna do this and that um because if i don't nothing's gonna happen and and really like in, in the big picture, when I look at my own like progression over the last like ten years, there's I've, a lot of my career has been based off of chance coincidences or like chance meetings, uh, or or just like being at the right place at the right time. Um, when I started doing drum edits for you, it was just happened to be when you were back in Atlanta for like a weekend or something like that, or or a week. Mm-hmm. Um, when and then you know I would get referred to this guy or that guy, and they would just so happen to need a drum edit, and you'd be there to recommend my name and like things don't go that easily for most people I feel like um and yeah but you know what man uh there's okay so the luck comes in that you met my brother right you met sure. my brother and then I feel like that's the lucky stuff is like who you meet is that's where the luck comes in because in an alternate universe, maybe you would have never met my brother. Maybe you would have never been in a situation where you were inspired to make this a career or seen what it takes. Maybe you would have not even done this. Who knows? Maybe you would have. There's no telling what would have happened. But I think that the the luck is in who you meet. And I can go back in time and name you most people that I was lucky enough to meet who then made it happen. However, I personally have met a lot of people who want to be, you know, who want to work under producers or who wanted to edit drums for me or whatever, whose names I did not recommend. Right. Way more because because they, so it's a combination of things. Yeah, so there is luck in who you meet. You can't control that stuff, but what you do with it, that's, and it was wise of you to understand that you need to take a few years and really hone it in. That reminds me, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of how I grew up. Um, so there was a big contrast between me and my friends growing up, like in our teenage years, especially I knew I was going to do music and it just made perfect sense. That's what I was going to do. And it was going to work. And I didn't even question it. However, all my friends' parents 
again, were not professional musicians. So they wanted backup plans. They were like, why don't you do something smart to their kids? And even though some of them did want to go into music, they eventually just stopped because there was so much pressure making it seem like it was just an unrealistic thing. And I guess in some ways it is an unrealistic thing for lots of people. However, because I grew up in an environment where, you know, I saw people every day who just made music for a living and not only made music for a living, but did really well at it. And I just grew up around that. It didn't even cross my mind that it's a tough industry to get into. It just made sense. Like, uh, from my dad to all his friends and it's just that's what they do it's just like okay that's I'm gonna do it too it just yeah. made, made it real life yeah I, I guess I, I mentioned it just because uh, I mentioned my own kind of like outlook as, as as it being kind of having a lucky go of things just because to reinforce to other people that you know like I feel like I haven't put in that much work on like the networking side of things and like actually putting myself out there but I, I have my my skills pretty honed, um, but if you put in like, you know, if you put a decent amount of work into the networking side of things and putting yourself out there, you can do as good or better than than I've done. So like, it's it's really not like a hard a high bar to a, to achieve to be able to work under a producer too and do some drum edits and get your name on a few records. Like that's that's really not a high bar um, once you've got the technical skills down. You know, we have that reminds me of another student since you brought up the Middle East. His name is Mazin Ayub. What's up, Mazin? But uh, Mazin is from Jordan. And I believe that he tried to have a recording career or music career in Jordan, and it didn't go so well. Uh, He there wasn't the kind of opportunity there that he wanted. So he went to recording school in Canada, I believe. Um, And with his goal of getting to the U.S. because it's kind of the prime market here. He went from Toronto to Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, Columbus? What did you... You're going all the way from Jordan to Columbus, Ohio? That's why. But but he went there and he lasted two months and moved to L.A. And in L.A., he was driven enough to where... He got in a band with uh, Trey from Gear Gods um, and just got into that whole circle right away because he's a great dude and he's a really good drummer. He just does what he says he's going to do. But had he, you know, so maybe there's some luck involved, but had he not put himself there, had he not made the massive gargantuan effort to leave Jordan, leave Canada, leave Columbus and go to L.A., you know, it would have never happened. And where it goes from here, who knows? But uh, he created that luck. And same way, you know, with my band, we got to Roadrunner because James Murphy introduced our stuff to Monty Connor. The way that that happened was because I got introduced to James Murphy because there was a magazine, and I almost don't rem- like it was like Southeast Metal or something like that. There was a magazine, like a regional magazine back then, who uh, I was just like, I'm, in addition to handing out all these CDs, I'm going to place advertisements in there. Every month I'm going to spend like 250 bucks, and it'll, you know, will be 
our name will be distributed regionally. And may, and I realized, I already knew from studying about how the media works, that you, the way to get magazines back then to feature you would be to buy advertisement. Mm. That, that is how it works. They don't do it for charity. You buy, if you notice, even nowadays with magazines, if you see, you'll see a full-page ad for the same person that's on the cover or the same band or the same right. company. You know, that, that kind of stuff uh, is very, very common. So I had advertised in there for like six months, and then they were like, hey, I got someone you should meet. Uh, I, he's a producer, he's a guitar player, and he's looking for a band to work with so that he can go to the next level. He's, Have you heard of James Murphy? And I was like, fuck yeah, I've heard of James Murphy. And so, you know... Somebody lucky that I had that connection made, which then helped make the record deal happen. But had I not decided to start putting the money into that magazine, it never would have right. happened. And For sure. who the hell knows? Maybe it would have never gotten signed. Yeah. Life would be completely different right now. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, even if the risk is not, um, even if it, it, putting yourself out there is not like moving to another the other side of the world, um, just like small moves, just like, you know, small directed moves to where you want to go. Like if you have a goal in mind, like one of the common things that's been coming up on the one-on-ones is like, I want to work under such and such producer, or like, I want to work under one of the big, like pop punk producers or one of the big hardcore producers, such and such. And I'm kind of just like, well, you know, Chances are, if they're big enough, they probably have some assistance already, and they're probably around Who your are age. really good. Yeah. And um, after maybe three or four years or something like that, they're probably going to want to move up and on and on with their lives and up with their careers. And um, so you got to be the one there to, to, to pick up the reins from there. And, you know, whatever you can do to, like, introduce yourself in a friendly way and um, just kind of make it known that hey, I would love to do some edits for free for you if you ever get overloaded. Um, I find like that usually ends up leading to a job if you have your skills down at least, you know? And everybody needs everybody everybody needs edits. Everybody needs like drum and vocal edits. Um, and everybody, nobody wants to be doing that forever. So everybody's always looking to kind of be the producer at some point. Um, so it's you know kind of like with uh, I was watching a documentary about the that hired guns documentary on Netflix, um, and they were talking I've about never like seen it. Should I watch it? Maybe I don't know. Okay, but it's hard for me to give a full <laughs> recommendation, but it was it was kind of corny. But they were going through like um, you know like Billy Joel's backing band history and just like how how um, demanding they are with like this is a person that really clicks with the group and the rest of you guys are fired. Even though you've been touring with me for the last two years, I'm going to like replace the whole lineup except for the drummer. And it's like, that's just normal. Um, and in, kind of in a similar way, I feel like, at least from my point of view, um, if you're going into the music industry, you're not going into the music industry to edit drums. Like that's, I don't know anybody whose ultimate goal is to be a drum editor. There, you know, That's the starting point. So just, uh, you know, be friendly and, and, you know, if it, it doesn't take many, like from the point of not having anything on your resume to doing some edits for a guy and maybe getting like a couple assistant credits. And then you have, you know, three or four or five records on your resume 
that say, hey, I worked on these records that actually got released on a label or by some band that's notable that put out a music video and you can listen to it and it sounds good. And I actually had some involvement and I was credited. Um, from there, that's, I mean, you could start grabbing ba- local bands if you want from that point. I mean, so zero to 60. I mean, if you have the space to do it, like another thing I was talking this is kind of jumping, but um, as far as just like getting started in recording local bands, like uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up Corey Batista again. Um, and uh, yeah, I met him at, at one of the Atlanta meetups and uh, you know, like he, he, we were talking about like what it takes to, to kind of like seal the deal with a band, like, going to shows and like talking to you know like go to a DIY band show or whatever local bands and chat them up help them load their gear um you know just kind of make small talk see what you guys are up to what phase you know all the kind of like what what phase are you in right now uh writing recording or you know promoting etc um and like but once you can get like we we're talking about like if you can get the drummer to come into your place and sit down at your drum kit that's like already set up and like already mic'd up and everything and already has some like presets going or like a template going if you can sit them down and record them for like 20 seconds and then walk them to the, into the control room and like play it back for them it's like you you win done deal like yeah how many how many singers and drummers from local bands do you know that like have heard themselves produced well like that's that's always been the thing for me is like especially with singers if <laughs> i was actually thinking wow very very few yeah i mean like i i'm there were there was a few uh bands like when uh when i would come down there uh to to sanford to record vocals for whatever band we were working on um there was a few guys who would just like you know whether it was their first studio experience or maybe they had recorded with some other local guy before but the number of times I got like, wow, I don't want to record vocals with anybody else ever again. It like happened more often than I would think. I, I didn't expect it to ever happen. Um, and some of those actually were telling the truth. And yeah, and some of them for came instance, back the for, binary code. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if you put the work in, they will come back and like, especially with singers, it being such a personal thing. Like if you can win the trust of a singer, they probably don't want to go out and try five other producers out after that, or just randomly trust some other guy for the next record. They're going to go with what they know works. Um, and so, yeah, drums and vocals, especially, I feel like that's a really good way to, to make your mark because I mean, guitars and bass, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but I feel like the drum editing and the the vocal production thing is like if you can really take charge of those areas you can you can win yourself you can put yourself at a higher place than most of the other people in your market well let's take a quick second let me say that um if you're a nail the mix subscriber and you want to improve your drum editing and your vocal production skills uh actually John here has made two fast tracks for our URM enhanced level. One is a Pro Tools fast track. However, it has an incredible drum editing section. And even though you might be on a different DAW, uh, lots of the concepts are similar. I would recommend watching it and then seeing how you can adopt it to your own workflow. We are making a Cubase one with Jeff Dunn coming up, and we're actually using John's Pro Tools 
fast track as the as a template for it. but then we also did the vocal editing one which is coming out next month but if you go to nailthemix.com slash upgrade you can upgrade your account to urm enhanced and i highly suggest getting really really good at those things but back to what you did you also even started taking voice lessons if i yeah. remember correctly like yeah you i took actually, lessons for like a year and a half yeah, you actually did what it took to where, I mean, I mean, it served various functions. You could replace, you could vocalists or do harmonies, things like that. But, but really, you it helped you understand, I think, what a vocalist is going through and what yeah. you can get out of them. Yeah, and being able to to um, communicate with them. More or less like an actual vocal coach would communicate with somebody. Um, trying to, like, learning some of the techniques of, like, how they taught me. Just take, like, the simplest stuff and see how I can pass it on without screwing up a vocalist's technique that they already have. Um, that seems to be a recurring theme that, you know, we've touched on in the past. It's just, like, don't don't try to recreate a singer when he walks in the door, but um, there are some things you could do to kind of coach him through the rough Man. spots, you know? <laughs> Man, that, I really do sometimes regret a few of those times where I tried to do that, and it just fell flat. It just backfired because I tried to, re, like, re... I don't know. I tried to turn him into a different person almost. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, nowadays, I mean, I don't do it anymore. Nowadays, I would probably take a very different approach. But, um, yeah, I can tell you guys from my own misexperience that, yeah, you should not try to recreate a vocalist. But uh, on the other hand, John, if like... What John's saying. <laughs> on the other hand, like, if you're if you're tracking a vocalist and you know something is not quite sounding right. Um, if you can, if you have like the one sentence of advice that like, if you can explain it to the vocalist in a way that actually gets through and they can change it to make it right. That's a really valuable skill. Like, um, you know, I'll, I'll say, do it again, do it again, do it again. And then the singer's like, okay, what do you want? What is, what is it that I'm not doing right? What do you want me to change? And that's where it comes in. Like, what are you going to tell them? And, and how many things are you going to tell them? Like, you know, one of the kind of rules of thumb is like only make them focus on one thing at a time. Like you may hear three different things that you want them to fix, but next take, just focus on one of those things and try and communicate it in a simple way. Don't use too many words. Don't make them think too much. Don't get like, you know, the last thing you want them, a vocalist to do is to be in their head the whole time. Um, mm -hmm. worrying about if they sound good and, and just, you know, you wanted to, to feel comfortable and like they're singing in their car or something like that. Just, uh, you know, um, so, uh, even, even communicating with guys who haven't taken lessons or don't really know, uh, kind of the ins and outs of, or, or know the vocalist language. So if I, if I told somebody, um, you know, you need to raise your larynx a little bit. They may not be able to do that uh, in those words, but yeah, they may not know what you mean. Either. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, 
and and I know we've had our problems with trying to get people on the Melissa Cross thing in the past, but the one the one that seems to work really well is the uh, above the pencil thing. So like if you take if you take a pencil or any kind of sharp thing and put it in your mouth, and then the idea is to uh, have the resonance go over the thing that's in your mouth or above the pencil is what she calls it, um, and stuff like that. Or like um, if you can give them physical instructions, like. Uh, Okay, for this part, since um, you're having trouble coming in on this first note, um, where you're, you're always coming in sharp, you're always coming in flat on this first note, try singing that note like a bar before you actually come in. So it'll be like, um, if you have two bar count in, it'll be like one, two, three, four, sing the note, and then one, two, three, four, and then you come in. Um, stuff like that. Kind of the similar thing as to like pre roll when you're playing drums or guitar. Um, and so yep. that takes that's stuff that you just like you'd have to teach a, uh, a drummer how to play into the bleed, um, or, you know, like play the cymbal bleed so that when he punches in, it's correct. You kind of have to teach vocalists the same sort of thing of like um, not only uh, how to how to get a comp correct, but like you have to really micromanage it on like, I know I need this out of the vocalist, so I'm going to get them to do this take, and I'm going to take this word from this take, and then I'm going to get them to do this, and I'm going to take that word from that take, and then we're going to comp it all together. And you have to have the organization and to to keep track of all that. And um, yeah, so it, it's a lot to manage, but uh, if you can keep it simple for the vocalist and keep them uh, engaged and, and not have a whole lot of downtime between takes... Um, that are those are all things that help for sure. You know, ha, um, you know Mary Zimmer. Yeah, so a little bit. I I, I listened to her podcast uh, or the she, episode she did. Yeah, yeah. She she did two podcasts with us, and she's got a site called VoiceHacks.com where she covers a lot of a lot of things that vocalists can do to just get better in these scenarios. And I recommend for anybody who's having trouble with vocals to check out those podcasts and uh, maybe even hit her up or try it. You know, I think like John did, every producer who works with vocalists should take vocal lessons at one point. Even I did at one point in time. Uh, I And I hate singing. The, the other thing too that I thought was interesting. So you said, you know, v- drum stuff and vocal stuff is what everybody will always need. Yeah. And seems it, like I right. absolutely think it's true. And I remember when we were working together that we even got a system down to if the drummer sucked mm. in the band or they had no drummer to where like for instance, you would play the cymbals and I'd record you. Yeah. Uh, we we figured out all this stuff and you were actually pretty good at it. I mean, you know, obviously you weren't like Alex Rudinger or anything, but you were actually <laughs> no, pretty it, good. I mean and actually better than a lot of the people in <laughs> bands. So did you take drum lessons or like you obviously put some time into getting decent enough at drums? Yeah, I think I've just had the mind for drums. Uh, like when I was really young, I got like a, a a kid's drum set for Christmas one year, um, and I banged around on it. But no, I never took lessons. But um, I, I found that when I started writing songs, um, and you know, like in high school um, or like eighth grade through high school, um, 
I could program drums just fine, and it wouldn't sound like an octopus. And I don't know I could I <laughs> I can air drum everything. I could visualize the the drummer playing it. So it just it seemed natural to me. Like I I just somehow I'm able to think like a drummer. Um, but you know I so I, you got a drum set at a very young age. I did, um, and I've sense. continued to c- kind of keep that up. Actually, like I just have a natural interest in drums, um, and like I, I have. In, in my living room, I have uh, uh, some a practice pad with uh, a double kick setup, like kind of like Rudinger does, where I just can't do what he does. <laughs> but I try. <laughs> well, uh, he, like he's he's like an Olympic whatever. athlete. Yeah, like I'm, I'm doing the Alex Rudinger exercises at 50% speed. Um, so that's fun. That's still pretty impressive, actually. Well, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, he he literally is like an Olympic athlete on yeah, drums. Yeah, he really but is. Um, I, I guess the point is that these two disciplines that really do keep people employed, um, you actually went the extra mile with, not just in your recording skills, but in, as a musician. And yeah. I know for a fact that that's helped. I know that you're a, you're a great drum editor, not just because of your fancy keyboard shortcuts and stuff. I mean, that stuff's great, obviously, efficiency of workflow, you know, that's who, I can't say enough about that. But if you didn't have the musical background to just understand drums and how they're supposed to go musically, then all the, you know, all the macros in the world aren't going to really help you out. Yeah. Um, You have to have, like, I don't know, if you're editing like Euroblasts or something, you got to know like how not to put everything on the grid and have it sound like a machine or, you know, if, if somebody requests that you don't like grid the fills, you have to like know what the, how, how much you can get away with and what sounds natural. Um, and what, you know, try and get into the producer's head of like, what, what's, how much is too much. And, you know, if you're nodding, nodding along, what's going to throw their ear off. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, even if you don't like actually, even if you can't, record a drum beat and have it sound good um if you can tune drums and like get your do the drum samples on the kit that's like a pretty good start i mean you've already that's a great start <laughs> you, you've already cut out like the variable of does the drummer know how to tune his drums correctly um and if, which is if generally needs, no yeah and and if needs be and usually they don't know how to take samples either they usually can't hit rim shots the same way that they do when they're actually playing or they you know they just don't know what you you're you're the engineer so you have you know what you're looking for when you're taking samples so if you can actually be behind the kit and be the one taking samples or you know that that's uh, that's a big up um that's why i always had matt brown yeah uh, hit for when i was taking samples first of all because he's a better drummer than most drummers i'd record but he just knows how to hit it for that purpose, and so it's not even a conversation. It's just, let's yeah. do it. And yeah, it just sounds do it. great. And, yeah. I mean, I don't think any, anybody's going to get butt hurt about, like, not sitting behind the kit for 45 minutes waiting for their Chinas to ring out. <laughs> like, um, that's not that exciting of a process. So, um, yeah, if you can... Uh, if you know enough about drums to be able to tune up the drum kit and, like, make it sound good so that the drummer can just sit down and play... That's that's a huge uh, win in your book, and that you know, there's. I would imagine you could probably get 
work out of that too. Like if you have that in your skill set, that's going to be a big advantage for you if you're looking to get an assistant job of like, yeah, I could be your drum tech. I can set up guitars for you. I can do whatever. Um, all those little things that, uh, you know, maybe people are hiring out if you can uh, make yourself useful, I, add value, you know? I can say that back when I was living in Florida and had the studio there, that I definitely got a lot of work that were was drums only. Yeah. I'm not talking about when the dudes across the street would record drums for their albums, then do the rest in their control rooms. I mean, bands would specifically hit me up just to use the drum room. Yeah. Some would even fly down uh, just to have me record their drums and then fly back to do whatever. And, and you know, sometimes we'd use Matt, sometimes we wouldn't, depending on budget. I always preferred to use Matt because he's yeah. so much better than me at tuning. But uh, but still, like, I knew enough to be able to get by. And it really made a huge, huge difference. However, not everyone is going to end up with a drum room that size or that good. But I don't think it really matters. Like, if you're dealing with your local level artists or regional, yeah. um, you know, they're what they're used to is generally garbage. Yeah. So, you know, you can take a very modest setup and make it sound very, very good if you know how to tune the drums and you know how to mic them up. Like you can, you know, and then if you don't have a large room, there are things you can do, uh, like to create, you can create a fake room off of samples, yeah. for instance. There's a lot that you can do, but just knowing how to make them sound good through tuning and miking already puts you so far ahead of most people. Yeah, going back to kind of like the whole, just like if you can get a drummer to come into your place and sit down at a kit and have them sound awesome, mm -hmm. then you, you've got a new client. Um, and you know, like actually, I'm I'm probably gonna move from this house in the next month or two. Um, so I'm like looking at like. Uh, I'm looking for houses with like, you know, higher ceilings and does it have enough room for a control room? Is it shaped in a way that will be con conducive to drum recording? Because there will be a few times throughout the year that I'm going to have to turn the living room into a drum room or, um, it, and still then, in Atlanta. Yeah. And, and awesome. And you know what? That's, that's fine. You know, like the, especially if you get into the higher BPM stuff, like the amount of times, like you were talking about on the other podcast, like the amount of times you need that all of that room for the drums is, is uh, yeah, not that common once you get to the two hundreds. Um, no, it really isn't. That the room actually becomes a detriment. I think Matt Brown and I were talking about this yesterday in an episode of Ask Professor Drum. Like back, I know that when I had the big ass drum room and we'd have something, a band that's t whose tempos were above 200, y you remember this, we would build a fort yeah. with gobos all around the, I mean, we would alter that room a lot in order not to, to mention, not get it sound like mud. Yeah. And plus like, especially if you're using a real kick, uh, like a lot of yeah. times we were using a kick pad, so we didn't have that problem. But if you're using a real kick, you really got to be careful. Um, and in even so, even if you don't have a living room that's conducive to drum recording, like one of the things I, I've done on a project that I've been working on uh, for the last couple of years, um, and we did like two rounds of drum recording for this record. And both times we just, uh, 
Well, actually, the, the first time we, we rented an Airbnb for the weekend up in the mountains in Georgia and just like a, in a cabin and just like took nice. three and a half days and did drums for like five songs or something. And then we rented another weekend in another cabin and did another three, uh, like three days, do another five songs, whatever. Um, and it's almost like a, a destination, you know, recording location. Um, you know, you have to have enough stuff that you can actually like bring it and show up at a place and record mm. decent drum sounds. But um, that in itself is not that big of a, I mean, if you have some drum mics and you have an interface that can take at least like whatever, 16 inputs, you're probably okay. Um, and, you know, like we're talking about with the, with uh, Matt was talking about at the summit with uh, the, the difference between preamp quality. It's like, yeah, you could, you could totally get started by just buying some, some mid range preamps and um, you know, Go 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 run an Airbnb and abuse the hell out of it for for a weekend, and you will get some of the best fucking experience of your life. You know, it's it's amazing too how little of a difference the preamps make in relation to the getting the actual drums to sound good on their own. Like that's the most important thing. And that's something that you can learn. And that's something that you don't have to figure out how to get, you know, $15,000 or more to be able to buy all the preamps, all the nice ones, and then all these nice drum microphones. You forget about that. Like, get get some multi channel preamps and then just work on your skills. Yeah. And if, if you're part of the nail, the mix community, part of the URM community already, like chances are you're pretty saturated with material that you could practice mixing drums on, you know, like there's all sorts of different scenarios and just like it was tracked with this or it was tracked in the most amazing room. It was tracked in the basement. There are no real drums. You got to create something from scratch, whatever the situation is like, there's enough material to practice coming you know creating a finished product from whatever you're given really so um you know i I think that's you know the guerrilla recording should be something on people's minds because uh it's not that high of a task you don't have to have an amazing control room um just go record you know record some like <laughs> I, I saw like a couple of years back. I think I saw a picture of uh, Zach Servini recording vocals on top of a mountain or something. I was yes. like, he posted that in a, in a group on Facebook. Yeah, I was like, I want to do that. I, I, you know what? Screw being in the control room. I'm, I'm going to go on. He, top he of took a mountain. an M box. Yeah, he did exactly. It on an M box. That's that's what you need. Is just like you know, decent preamp, decent converters, and a good performance, and a really good performance. And by and, decent, you mean like that it works? Yeah, I mean, like I said, we we have so many like tracks that you could practice on um, in URM and Nail Mix that like you should be able to be prepared for just about anything. Um, you know, go through like three Nail Mixes and make like preset vocal chains for each different singer, and you probably already got a nice rainbow of assortment of of stuff that you could throw at just about anybody. You know. Uh, you know, that's a, actually a really, really good point. I wonder how many of our students are using the tracks for that sort of thing, like thinking ahead. All right, so I've been in Nail the Mix for more than three months. I've access to all these things, whereas like 
the, this podcast we're doing now comes out in February, so no problem saying that the band is Carnival, you know. So you have something like that where the drums on their own sound fucking incredible. Yeah, you want to know Whereas, if your drum room sounds yeah. good? You got a comparison <laughs> yeah, right there. Yeah. yeah, or uh, there's another one. I'm not going to mention which one, but it was a very, very big song, and the mix is incredible, but the mixer was given some drums that were not recorded very well at all, and it actually it showcases how badass of a mixer he is, that he could make yeah. those drums sound incredible. But yeah, we have the full range. We have, and then some stuff that was recorded well, but in a very, very small room, and then other stuff where, you know, you can not the best drummer, but they figure out a way to get through it. So all the scenarios you're going to encounter in real life are pretty much, with the exception of shitty, shitty drummers that can't finish their parts, (laughs) with the exception of that scenario, yeah, it is all covered. And I wonder how many people do that and then create presets and templates to help them than deal with real life. I think they should if they're yeah. not. I mean, it does. It's it's one of those things. It does take some time and effort. Um, and um, I probably don't do enough of it myself. But um, that's it's always the kind of thing I recommend on in the one on ones. Is uh, like you know, if somebody asks me, is how does my guitar tone sound? Like, how are my reamps? I was like, well, you know, just solo your reamp versus like your favorite reamp from whatever nail the mix, and like look at it on a frequency graph. Like, what what I the way I do mix crits most of the time is um i'll have like the the person's mix that i'm i'm checking out on one track and then uh and it's got a frequency analyzer eq the, the fab filter pro q2 um analyzer and the the side chain on that is set to a reference mix so i can see the frequency response of uh the mix i'm looking at and the reference mix laid over laid on top of each other so it's really easy to just mm-hmm. like look at you know, oh, there's too much 200 hertz in this area compared to whatever. And you can do the same thing with anything. It's like, you know, is my guitar tone good enough? I don't know. Pull up the Amir guitar tone and, and like, see what your frequency curve looks like compared to that. Or, like, does my snare close mic sound good enough? I don't know. Compare it to Taylor Larson's and see if see if it's coming close. Um, and, you know, what do you have to do to get it that close or to get it into that territory it's like um you know if if you're one of those people who's afraid of making big picture moves um you know making huge eq boosts or you know big eq cuts or whatever um i i think that this is and i was one of those people i'll raise my hand um once you start referencing other people's material and then you can feel a little more confident in that Yes, I am making the right decision because whatever I'm doing, it's getting it closer to my goal. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's kind of what I try to emphasize to people uh, with mixing and just any part of this process is if you're if you're not confident in whatever it is you're doing, then go find somebody who who either is confident about it or like who can tell you what you're doing wrong, or go find something that more often that you really believe in that you think is great. And compare it. Just be brutally honest and, and try and separate the, the elements that you're looking at as much as possible. So, for example, if you're stuck on the low end of your mix, roll off all the high end and just listen to the three elements in your sub, like which should just be like the low end of the guitars, your bass, and the kick drum. And um, 
you know, compare that volume matched to whatever reference mix you're doing, and then you should be able to, you know, there's only three things there, and your ear should be able to separate it. Um, it's much easier you know, to do that than, yeah, than to like listen to a whole mix. If you're like most producers, you're dialing your drum sounds the old fashioned way by trial and error, swapping out drums heads, and mics until you finally find something that works, oftentimes for several exhausting and tedious days. Sound familiar, right? I know I have spent up to a week getting drum sounds in the past before I knew some of this stuff. So guess what? It doesn't have to be so painful. Ultimate Drum Production is our brand new course that teaches you the scientific method for dialing in the perfect drum sound on the very first try. Exactly, the first try, not the hundredth try. It explains in extreme detail the sonic character of every single component of drum sound with exhaustive profiles of every kind of drum head, shell material, bearing edge and hoop, as well as ridiculously detailed tutorials on mic selection, placement and room choice, editing, and mixing. And when you understand drum tone at such a fundamental, insanely deep level, it's like having a set of tone Legos you can use to easily build the sound you hear in your head. You don't need to guess and check. You just assemble the building blocks however you want. This course is only going to be around for a couple more weeks before we close it for at least a year. To find out more and get access, just head on over to ultimatedrumproduction.com and we'll see you in class. I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm just thinking back to how the times when I got better. So, you know, so I started recording in 2000, 2001, and I got better naturally just from putting in work. But when James Murphy came to my house and he was way better than me, so I started to to hear how he made tracks sound. And then I think Andy Sneap did something for us just as a favor, like a reamp or something. Mm -hmm. And I got to hear what that sounded like. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what it needs to be. Like I got way better just by hearing that and understanding, like it just showed me where the bar is. And then when I got to Florida, that was another time that I just got a lot better very, very quickly just because I was around people that were way better than me. And I got to see what, most importantly, what their standards were, yeah. what what they would not allow, what and what you could get away with, what you should not get away with, and just how it's done. And getting material to work against is just the best possible thing short of having an amazing mentor, but not everyone can have an amazing mentor. So the next best thing is to, you know, is to have uh, stuff that you can reference that shows you where the bar is. Yeah. It's yeah, important because I mean, otherwise, how are you going to know? Right. Exactly. I, I find, especially just like the amount of times that I've let my eyes trick my ears and just all those kind of things where you're mixing for too mm-hmm. long and then something happens and you realize that you weren't, you were listening to the, you didn't have input monitoring on or something like that, and you know you, you were listening to the <laughs> same EQing thing, EQing the yeah. wrong track, <laughs> right? Yeah, those those sorts of things. If you, the more you can cut back on that type of stuff, and and really, it's less of like making dumb mistakes than it is like just listening to the same thing over and over and being not sure what to do with it next. Um, I've I found so much value in just like just listen to the low end, then just listen to the high end, then just listen to like 
centered around 500 hertz and see what's going on and uh, mm-hmm. make sure everything stays volume matched in comparison. Don't stay on any one thing for too long. Like if you keep going back and forth and you can't decide, just move on to something else um, because you're not gaining anything by flipping back and forth forever. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the benefit of like, it's, if you're just listening to the low end or just the high end, like if, you know, kind of emulating what it would sound like coming out of an, uh, a phone or a boom box or something like that. If you listen to a song like that for 10 minutes and work on your balances, you're fl- put it into mono and work on your balances for 10 minutes. And then you take all that stuff off and put it back into stereo full frequency. You're like, wow, my mix sounds awesome. And then you're back, you know, like you have a reason to be stoked again. Cause you just changed your whole perspective and without having to, you know, like take an hour break or go like, I don't know, go to the bar or something, you know? Totally. I, I can echo what you're saying. Um, cause I'm thinking what, when I started doing that, that was another time that I got way better. So basically, by 2013, the uh, dudes I was working with were no longer helping me get better. And I was looking for ways to keep on getting better. So I started just looking around and seeing what I, what. And that's when I discovered Magic AB. Mm. And so one thing that I would do was I'd, put mixes I liked in Magic AB, but then i do exactly what you said. I would play only the low end from that mix, and then mm-hmm. I'd work on only the low end on my mix and be like, okay, so the low end on the this mix or these three mixes that I love, is they're all roughly kind of in this ballpark. Got to get mine there. And then the snare or the mid-range or whatever. Yeah. And when I did that around 2013 or 14, I got way better way better. Like I started to actually get to the point where I didn't completely hate myself. And, and then I, then I moved to Atlanta and started (laughs) URM, but, but, but I remember that was like the, a very, very, uh, very, very productive time with a lot of improvement. Once the active referencing started. I highly recommend it. I'm sure there's something better than Magic AB now. Yeah, I, I was, was going to say, actually, um, and I, I think I saw that Andy Sneap endorsed this plugin, um, so everybody go buy it right now. Um, it's called <laughs> Master Check Pro uh, by a company called Nugen. Um, and, the, and the main thing... By that Ted, it, Nugent. Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's out of <laughs> racism. He's into plugins. Um <laughs> Yeah, no. The, the the thing that's really cool about it is it um it has two plugins. So it has the the master check plugin, and then it has a send plugin. So um, anything that uh, the the send plugin works, you put you put on your re- your reference tracks, so it will automatically do the volume matching based on um, uh, the uh, you know the LUFS or the PLR or whatever the dynamic ratio is. Um, so there's a little less guesswork in, in matching the volumes, and I find that helps a lot when, um, especially if you're not quite to the full mastered mix phase where you, like, say you've you've got your basic balances together um, and you're checking against a final mix, but you haven't put your mastering limiter on and you haven't, like, clipped off those snare transients. So it's kind of an unfair comparison because you have more headroom and you're turning it down the other mix. Um, sometimes, like the balance of the bass and the highs, can make you think that your mix is l- like should be louder compared to the other mix than it actually should be. Mm-hmm. So it it kind of 
sometimes like I'll 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 use it to volume match two things and my mix will be like way lower volume even though it says that they're volume matched and that tells me that there's some kind of frequency imbalance so I'll just immediately pull up the the frequency analyzer and usually there's some peak either the low end is way too much or the high end is way too much usually it's the low end way too much um you know something around like the 100 that would be like farting out in your car um but yeah doing that the whole kind of reference thing that was really what got me to the place of being able to put a mix on in the car and then listen to a commercial mix that I like and not feel terrible about it myself. Because I, 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 feel, I feel like that's the, that's like, for me, that's kind of like the, 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 that's the goal. Like, it's quite the, a milestone. Yeah. I mean, the amount of times, like for everybody, like just think about the amount of times that you've, you've gone and, and worked on something for eight hours and then you go play it back in the car and then you put on like a Radiohead song or whatever, you know, whatever it is you're listening to and you're just like, oh man. A Will Putney mix. Right, a Will Putney mix and then the snare, the kick and snare just totally destroy you compared to what your mix was doing. It's like, you don't, don't let yourself get to that point. Just like, cut it off in the first 20 minutes. Like, check your snare and make, make sure that snare never gets lower than Putney <laughs> snare. Or, you know, like, uh, <laughs> Make sure that those low mids of the guitar are always are always banging like he has them. Um, so you know, I think that was one of the things I picked up watching other people mix too. Was just like once I saw somebody like going back and forth, like a being between their reference mix, like every time they would make like a one dB change or something, I was like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. And um, I, I think one mm-hmm. of the one of the mental blocks that helped get me past it was. Uh, Weirdly enough, just like having a physical controller where I can A B stuff rather than having to keep a plug in window open like Magic A B or um like click on the solo buttons or just having something like whether it's a MIDI controller or like one of the avid controllers or the dangerous controller or anything where you can just like close your eyes, sit in the listening position and switch it. Um, that will, Mm -hmm. that seems to make things way easier. And then again, like emphasizing, um, any sort of like isolation you can do, whether it's uh, putting things into mono or like I know the dangerous controller, you can like solo out the left and the right speaker. Um, I always tell people like try putting on your headphones backwards. Um, if you're anything like me, you've gone to enough shows that your ears are not perfectly balanced anymore. And like, <laughs> so for me, like I always put them on and like I'll put my headphones on backwards and be like, holy shit, the ride is like way off or like way too low, way too high or something like that. Um, so, you know, any, anything that you do to, to just keep your ears fresh and uh, keep keep referencing. And if you can get past that point of, uh, you know, it, just like make your snare sound comparable and then get your kick to sound comparable and then get your guitars to sound comparable. Just like look at big picture stuff, because if you try to take it all at once and try and throw up all the faders and get it like in that first reference and you listen to the other guy's mix and you're like, nope. Um, and then you quit and go play video games. Uh, you don't want to get to that point. It's like, just, uh, you know, focus on one thing at a time. If, if, if it's not happening, just like, man, I can't get my snare to punch it through the mid range. Like, okay, we'll solo out the mid range and just work on the snare and see how much you can focus in, do whatever you can do to eliminate distractions. And, um, really like just, I mean, I keep, I, I use the word systematic a lot and I, I'm stealing it from, um, Ehrman. Um, 
<laughs> sorry, Armin. <laughs> sorry. Um, but I, sorry, I, bro. <laughs> like, I, I, read, I read his like his systematic mixing guide thing. I was like, yes, this is exactly what I was looking for. It's like something that really breaks it down in a useful way where you can take bite-sized chunks of things and feel like you're making the right decision almost all the time. And uh, the amount of times where you have to go back and correct yourself because you just did something that was totally wrong is only going to happen if you don't check yourself. Uh, uh, something that I think might be a good idea, you know, just to, based on what you're saying and something that you said earlier is, yeah, so if you say that you are going in things piece at a time, like, let's say, snare. Your snare against the reference, your snare sounds like a stick hitting a wet sack of potatoes. And it sucks. Um, well, maybe pull up your favorite four Nail the Mix episodes and watch the snare section. Yeah, and absolutely. Just take detailed notes and then maybe go into um, one of the fast tracks that covers the techniques you want to use, like EQ and compression or whatever, and take some detailed notes on stuff related and then go to work trying out that particular stuff. So you'll have four different approaches for snare plus uh you'll just have gotten some new info or like refreshed your info on how to eq properly how to compress properly and note the results that you're getting and as you do that uh you know some things will work better than others some might be the solution some might be close to the solution some not at all but just like start building your vocabulary of techniques so that when in over time, when you do get to the point where you're working on a snare and it's not quite there, you can just be like, okay, I'm going to try this. Yeah. No, didn't work. All right, can try this instead. Or you hear it and it's like, I know exactly what to do for this. It's this move plus this move plus that move. And, you know, that a lot of great mixers are at that point now where they just, they hear something and they know what they want it to sound like and just know if I use these three plugins and do this, this and that in this order will be good. And yep. they're like 90% there. Yeah. I, I usually tell people the same kind of thing. Just like if you're unsure on what your vocal chain should be, go check out a couple nail the mix vocal chains and see how they work. Cause most of them are fairly similar in, in terms of actual principle. Um, mm -hmm. You know, People are like, oh, you compress your vocals like that much? Wow. It's like, yeah, I mean, go watch one of these dudes. Look look at the kind of square waveform that they're creating with their with their vocals. And then, you know, don't be afraid to push it. Um, I, I mean, like speaking personally, like uh, the, the Amur nail to mix with, with Jeff, even though I'm a Pro Tools user, like I basically copied all the presets they have from that. Like every window they pulled up, I like re recreate it and save the preset. Um, and man, that's a good one. Yeah, that one and like the uh, the architects one was really good. Like I stole that the the guitar bus setup. I really liked uh, the way he Henrik was using lo-fi on the guitars, um, and like the uh, I don't know. There's just like stuff that you even even stuff you hear on the podcast of like oh uh, I remember like from like two years ago. One of the ones that stuck with me was uh, Dan Corneff saying. Um, like throw a, a widener on your parallel yep. guitars and boost 800. I was like, that's genius. Uh, I'm going to do that every time from now on. Um, 
so yeah, having stuff like that that you can just like integrate into your workflow or at least have saved. Um, and you do have to be a little bit proactive and and not lazy in terms of like once you come up with something cool, save it uh, because you probably will forget yeah. about it. And you will, you know, you'll go six months and you'll be like, oh yeah, that thing that I did that one time, that was really cool. And I've been struggling with that. Like, you know. Man, if somebody actually did what we're saying right now for like a, a few years, they <laughs> could be actually insane. become really good. Yeah. And actually we are seeing some of them become really good. Oh yeah. But, I mean, you know, now that it's been a few years that this info has been put out there, you are seeing that there are some guys that are really were serious about it who did exactly what we're saying and they're getting really good. Yeah. It, it's all about how much it you works. put back into it. Um, you know, it if you if you watch a nail and mix once, you're not gonna absorb everything. Um and no. <laughs> you you have to put it into practice, whatever it is. You know, you're not gonna remember you know, like what Nolly said about tuning drums the next time you show up for a drum session. You you've got to practice that. Um the same with everything else. Uh vocal production like the Andrew Wade guitar stuff like this is all stuff that's got to kind of have to be ingrained in you um so yeah you have to save it and practice it you can't just like watch it once and and say oh yeah that was cool all right so with that said um I think we're at that point where I'm gonna ask you some questions from the listeners the fire around Nick Pilata is asking do you want to hang out sometime or something? Man, Nick Pilata gets to travel around the world with you guys. <laughs> he and, does. Uh, I would love to hang out with Nick some more, and especially his dog. Because <laughs> um, his dog's Dude, really his dog's cute. dog's so cute. Yeah. All right, here's one from Dave Andreen. Um, what's it like working with major label artists versus metal bands? Honestly, I guess it's not that different. Um Client's a client, right? A client's a client, and they're all human beings, and unless they have some crazy ego thing going on, then they probably just want to be treated like another human being. Um, in fact, I find that sometimes like I accidentally treat people better because I didn't recognize them. Like I remember Jonah yeah. Hill came, in, came into the studio one time, and he was really skinny, and I didn't recognize him. And, you know, I may have gotten starstruck if I did, had recognized him, but... Um, so yeah, the, the more you can kind of turn that response off, the better. Uh, I think there's there's probably less room for error when you're working with a, a, a major label artist. I mean, they've they've had more experience in the studio. They probably know a little bit better what they're looking for, and um, so you've got to be a little more on point. There's less room for for dicking around and and trying to do things on the fly, and uh, you know, you just like. Whenever, whenever I had a, a major label artist coming in, it w- I was just that much more intent that everything's going to be ready and uh, you know set up and ready to go for they can just walk in the studio and be in front of the microphone in within a minute and be recording. Um, you know, I, I've gotten torn apart by rap artists before uh, because I didn't have quick punch on and they like did, you know, like a. Uh, whatever eight bars of of the mumble rap thing, and I didn't capture it, and then I got bitched at by by a major oh, label artist. So, whoops. Um, so you know it's those kind of things that you're, you're that's probably not something you're even thinking about or would be aware of unless you've worked on a hip hop session before, um, and and some of that will come from just like if you if you I don't know like if uh, I, I I mean 
most of my interactions with major label artists came through working at a commercial studio. Uh, and it, it's not going to creep up on you. Like you're, you're not going to find yourself working with a major <laughs> label artist all of a sudden without any warning. So, like, um, <laughs> just surprise. Uh, like, yeah, Katy Perry's <laughs> at your studio. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's not going to happen so much. Usually, when if you get in the internship, like rule number one that they tell you is uh, don't get starstruck and don't weird out the clients and don't say anything unless we ask you to say something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, don't give your opinion, um, all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, the very basic bones of like, I have no relationship with this client and I have no business being in their life. But once you get to the point where you're the engineer, then yeah, you, you just interact with them like a, a normal client. Uh, it's just, I guess there's a little more money on the line and you, you know, that makes, you know, there's, there's more, um, I guess there's more of a chance to lose some reputation if you screwed up. But uh, other than that, I would just try and treat everybody like they're, you know, like they're a rock star, you know. Great. That's a good answer. Um, Sean O'Shaughnessy is wondering, are there any features of Pro Tools 2018 that you think will benefit your workflow heavily? Any fresh new techniques or tools that you've been using that have made an impact on your work? And... Has the Evertune PRS been rad, and should I or everyone go out and get an Evertune-equipped guitar ASAP? Well, um, okay, uh, let's see. Evertune is awesome. Um, I the, the like this is this is one of those things of getting past the mental blocks, kind of like. There's been a few projects where I've been sitting on recording the rhythm guitars for way too long because I was just so turned off by the having to record rhythm guitars when I wasn't getting paid. Um, like I just, I hate it's it so much. It's a lot of hard work it, with tuning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, everybody has their, their threshold of how much, uh, how much tuning work they're going to put into it, uh, before they say it's good enough. Um, but you know, like I, I used to like tune, especially if it's like a down tuned band. Like we would be tuning every time the, you know, the chord moves more than like four or five frets, we'd retune for that you know area of the of the fretboard. Um, same with bass, or so, sometimes even more so for bass. Uh, so yeah, I mean, being able to just play the song uh, and not have to think about that stuff is is so awesome. And and. Being able to restring and have it just be like you know you put the strings on and it's already in tune and intonated and ready to go and you don't have to stretch the strings out and you don't have to do it's just like so much less headaches uh, as far as like the actual sound quality of it versus uh, you know whatever standard string through bridge or Floyd Rose that is something that I've been like I told myself that when I when I set my guitar off to be ever tuned, the first thing I was gonna do is do like a direct A B comparison of of the DIs. But to be honest, I don't care. Like it sounds good. Um, if it sounded bad, I would know. I, I feel like you know maybe whatever. We'll see. I'm I'm gonna do an A B comparison and just kind of see what the difference is in my particular uh, my PRS baritone. Um, but for me, like, say to to turn a six hour guitar session into a one and a half hour guitar session, that's worth it. Um, like, totally. If it, if if it made it a sound quality, if it reduced the sound quality to a point where it was really that noticeable, I think I would have noticed. Um, 
especially like I've been recording guitars, uh, the Sam Pura method of, of no amps, just like listen to the DI. Um, sometimes like, like you tried it. Yeah, I, I did. I did a whole like a uh, symphony of like black metal, uh, tremolo picking but with all the just di so i made sure i got all the tremolo picking like perfect um and uh yeah it was a lot of fun like that compared to another song that had a lot of like black metal tremolo picking that i did with the amp on i I compared the di's i was like yeah i was way tighter when i when i wasn't using the amp just because i was allowing myself to get away with all this pick noise and string noise that i didn't allow myself to get away with the other way Mm -hmm. um so I mean, not to say that that's the solution for recording guitars or anything uh, of, is not using an amp, but it definitely was an interesting experience, and I would recommend everybody try it just to like, you know, see what's actually coming out of your hands in the guitar. As far as uh, Pro Tools improvements, um, yeah, there are, there's some cool stuff, especially the 2018 uh, that just came out this week. Uh, they finally added like real track presets. I think I covered some of this in my Pro Tools fast track. There was kind of a a backward, like a, a sort of not documented way of doing track presets where you could create a folder in, uh, in your Pro Tools documents preferences folder uh, called track presets, and then you could export templates into that. And then when you went to create new track, it would show up as like a type, like rather than create new audio track and create new aux, it would say like create new mixing template, and then it would create all these mm-hmm. tracks for you. Um, and I went over that in the in the Pro Tools fast track, but they really implemented it uh, more thoroughly now, to where you can just like right click on a track and say load track preset, kind of like Cubase, um, and you can right click on a track and say save track preset, and it'll save all the inserts, and you just you know go to new track and say I want a new vocal stack, and it comes with all your vocal stack stuff. Um, so that's that's kind of a game changer for me. I mean, that's something that people have been wanting for a long time. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some other cool stuff, let's see. Um, you know, actually, one thing that was frustrating to me, a little bit frustrating, was uh, the w- I think it was like the same week that the Pro Tools Fast Track came out, they changed one of the shortcuts that I was using. Um, so, like, just if anybody wants to... Uh, take note, they changed uh, as of 12.8.3 they don't use tab to go to scroll through MIDI notes anymore, you use the arrow keys but that's that's the main difference there Um, they they made some improvements in the MIDI editing, you can like move uh, MIDI notes around more like Cubase with like the arrow keys, just like grab a MIDI note and hit up, 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 and it moves it up three semitones Mm -hmm. um Let's see, what else? I mean, I've, I've been able to... This is kind of an older feature. I think this is more like Pro Tools 11, but like just the whole being able to uh, export uh, like stems of... Just like select, I don't know, your, your drum bus, your bass bus, your all the lead, individual lead guitar tracks and all your individual keyboard tracks and then maybe like your vocal lead bus and your vocal background bus and your vocal effects and then just hit right-click export and then you're done with stems for that song. Um, and it like renders the automation offline and you know yeah, outputs stereo stuff. Beautiful. Yeah, all, all the stuff that you would be like, if I, if I send this band these stems, are they going to come back in a week and be like, hey, why is it the guitar not panned the same way it was? It's like, well, cause it's a monofile and damn it, I don't want to sit there and have to like listen to you every like guitar pass again like um just, just simple stuff like that it, that reduces the amount of uh 
uh, of headaches when it comes to uh, dealing with stuff that you know this this stuff should have been implemented 10 years ago but it's finally being implemented now so thank you avid yeah it's about time so uh sebastian drauda is wondering how often does your pro tools crash and how you handle the son of a bitch daw it doesn't do what you want (laughs) oh man um i usually just yell fuck you pro tools um no i uh i mean i mean like I cover this in the for, in the fast track as well. Uh, just like make sure your auto backup is set to every minute and keeps the last uh, ninety nine versions or whatever the maximum is. I think it's ninety nine. Um, and Dude, yeah, I can't believe people don't do that. Yeah, although I understand a little bit. Like at, at one point, I kind of turned it back. I turned it like two or three minutes because I felt like on certain sessions, at some point, some at some point in the version history, I felt like the autosave was causing the crashes. So if I like cut back mm-hmm. on the number of autosaves, it would cut back on my chance of it crashing by like 50%. But at this point, um, with the 2018 that's such a, version... That's such a like... Cool, I know. <laughs> like, like it's like the thing that's supposed to save you yeah. from... The thing that's supposed to save you from crashes ruining your session is what's causing the crashes. Yeah. So you need to back off on your insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's pretty great. Um it's cruel I think world. That that's gotten better though. Um you know, to me, in my experience, most of the, the crashing in Pro Tools has been I I wouldn't say it's because it's like the plugin developer's fault, but it's as a result of using certain plugins usually. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may be Avid's fault that whatever plugin implementation, like, you know, whatever uh, function call that they did in the plugin caused Pro Tools to freak out and die, and that may be Avid's fault. But usually it's some combination of plugins that's causing it. And, you know, there's there's a few that have caused me more headaches than others. And... uh, once you kind of recognize what those are, then just, I mean, there's, there's silly stuff. Like I remember at, at one point they've probably fixed this, but at one point the, um, like the slate tape machine, like it was more prone to crashing. If you had the, uh, the bottom half of the plugin showing, than if you just had like, you had the option of only showing half the plugin. And that was one of the things that I've just kind of figured out by experience of like, okay, it crashes sometimes if I have this open, so I'll just won't do that. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, um, and then uh, there, there, there's been situ- situations where people like freak out because it's like, oh, I can't open Pro Tools all of a sudden because like it keeps crashing on the startup, and that's again, that's usually Pro Tools getting to a certain plugin in the scan, and then it it dies. And really, the only way you can deal with that is take some of the plugins out of your plugins folder and f- figure out which one is causing the problems. Um, so process of elimination, and uh, yeah, I mean. To be honest, like I, I, I end up doing a lot of like tech supporty stuff for my friends just because I have that mode of thinking and. Um, yep. <laughs> that's uh, you know that's just how my brain I know, works. I've I guess. asked you, I've asked you countless times for dumb computer help. <laughs> it's a strange thing, like I, I, you know, certain people just interface with computers better than other people. I guess um, Google searches are, are always good, you know. Um, Google is your friend. There's usually lots of other people. I mean, lots of people own Pro Tools, so somebody else has probably experienced what you're experiencing, even if the actual error ID number isn't exactly the same, or the you know the mm-hmm. exact plugins or the circumstances are are not exactly the same. You could probably figure out some workaround, or um, you know, and always just as a 
as a bigger picture thing, just you know, always keep a backup of when your computer was working, um, so that if you need to go back, you can and and get it in a format where that isn't like a, a mental block for you. Like if it's one thing to have a backup, but if you have no idea how to restore that backup, then you kind of have no confidence in it and. If that situation mm-hmm. comes up, you're just going to be as freaked out if you were if you didn't have a backup because then you're like, oh, I gotta do this and I have no idea what I'm doing and my computer doesn't work and yeah. So just you know, learn some basic stuff like how to ha- make a backup and how to restore it and and practice it. Try it next time you like, you know, do do a fresh install of your operating system next time you have to and then make like once you've got Pro Tools and your basic plugin set up installed. Make like a, a disk image of that so that if you ever need to go back to kind of bare bones installation but with stuff installed so that if, you know, worst case scenario, I can always just load this disk image up and it'll take an hour or two and I'm back running. So, um, yeah, that's my advice. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so here's one from Rodney Altenbaugh, which hey, is Rodney. Dr. Douglas. Yeah, hello, Rodney. Hello, Rodney. So, Dr. Douglas, in this scenario, you have just received a folder of files to mix. You have loaded them into Pro Tools. What is your first step when it comes to gain staging? I think balance is something most people struggle with, and I'm curious to your approach. Do you make sure things are in clipping and trim as needed, or do you just... Or you just don't care, like some. Personally, I load a trim plugin on all tracks that is at default set at minus 18 and go from there. Hope all is well and keep up the awesome work. Thanks, Rodney. Um, yeah, I've experimented with stuff like that, like putting a trim plugin on every track. Um, at this point, I don't do anything like that. I pretty much just leave it unless, um, I mean, obviously, if I get a, a rhythm guitar and it looks like it's peaking at negative 24 db then i'm probably going to gain it up a little bit and try and figure out like try just i mean obviously if something is way low in terms of gain staging i'm going to get it back up before it hits any plugins but um no i mean i thought it was really interesting listening to billy decker talk about his his process of like the the quarter inch rule of like gaining stuff up to the same place so that you know, no matter what track you're working on or no matter what project you're working on, you can pull up a, a track and it'll be basically gain staged to the same place every time. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. a cool idea and I, I would like to try that. But um, for me, no, I, I just kind of start with everything down and I start usually start with the drums and bass and guitar and just try to get those three things in a decent place. You know, just get the kick, snare, overheads, and some rhythm guitars and a bass. Um, and usually those things are pretty, like, templatable. So, um, you know, uh, if, you, if you have, like, you know, your your sample drum template and you have your real drums template, um, you know, that's a pretty good place to start with drums. Like, uh, that's kind of why... One of the reasons I wanted to do the, the, the Contortionist Nail the Mix that month was to have, like, a... Uh, this is my natural drum template. Um, and then do another one that's all programmed drums and so have the opposite. So, yeah, we just kind of quickly uh, get started on the, your foundational building blocks um, and then get find, I guess, j- equally important, get a reference uh, where you could check those balances of your basic rhythm, uh, bass, and, and drums. Uh, whether it's, you know, even better if you can find like an unmastered mix, if somehow you've, you've finagled mm-hmm. your way into getting an unmastered mix, uh, that could be really helpful. Um, but, uh, even so, if you could just find like 
the intro or a part in a song where it's got some heavy guitars and a bass and a, a, a drum part that's somewhat comparable to yours. Um, you know, just work on big picture stuff like balance and like, you know, I, I, that's one thing I've been focusing more on and I've tried to emphasize to people more is just like big picture, big picture, big picture. Like don't get caught up in the details of EQing these little things, especially when you're starting out uh, with a mix, just mm-hmm. like get your reference, get your snare as loud as theirs, get your kick as loud as theirs, get your guitars as loud as theirs, and then go from there. Um, you know, start punching holes in your guitars, start, you know, doing your compression, but like as quickly as you can get it to a point where you could flip between your mix and the other mix and have it sound somewhat decent. Um, and you will, you will benefit. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of not getting hung up on little things, this is a perfect follow-up questions from Runar Magnuson. Hey, Runar. Hey, Runar. Hey, John. Hope you're doing great. When editing, I tend to fall into the trap of getting hung up in small details that I later realized didn't make much of a difference in the big picture. I also find this to slow me down. Do you have any good tips for avoiding this trap? Also, what do you find essential for developing editing speed? Okay. Um, I guess there's a couple of approaches you could take to this. Um, so like one example, I guess, of how not to do it would be like when I was editing drums for you and we were doing the contortionist. And I think like the first couple songs back in I, like 2012. Yeah. I, I spent way too long editing like the first two songs or something. Uh, I think I spent like seven hours each or something and it was too tight. It was too to the grid and everybody. I remember that. Um, and I ended up doing it again and, and just taking less time and just kind of forcing myself to do what he's talking about. Just like, um, and I guess my, my rule of thumb for that has been, um, you know, close your eyes and listen to it and then only hit stop when you hear something like nod your head, you know, nod along to the drums and then stop it when you hear something that sounds wrong. Um, whether you're playing it along to the click or not, maybe you don't even have the click on. Like if it's a pretty good drummer and he's, you know, on with things, just like listen to it without the click and see what's the first thing that really like that you notice that sounds weird and then fix that. You just start from the, the biggest mistakes and then work down because, uh, you know, as producers, we are listening to this song way more times than anybody else is going to. Uh, and we are going to no- notice things that nobody else is going to. And uh, you have to just be mindful of that. And, and um, you know, think of all the times that you've listened to other people's records and you've been like, man, those drums are way too edited. They shouldn't have done that. And, and then put yourself in those shoes and be like, yep, I've just got to like, you know. I know those that that snare is not exactly lined up with the grid, and my OCD t- is telling me to line it up, but I'm not going to because my ears say that it sounds okay, and that's a tough. Thing you know to do. what's funny? You know what's funny is you know like you said to close your eyes and listen. I've noticed when editing drums that the edit lines, the cuts, like your ears will trick you. Like you will hear oh, yeah. those those you will hear mm-hmm. the cuts. If you're looking at them. Oh, and yeah. so if you're not looking at them, you will oftentimes not hear that you not hear them. So, you know, you want to get your brain to stop playing tricks on you, too. Yeah, absolutely. You want to listen with your eyes closed so that you can actually hear whether or not the edits were done right. Yeah. On the other hand, there, there I mean, there is definitely something to be said for being able to edit with just your eyes. And that is a reality mm-hmm. of editing drums. Once you get to a certain point, you will be able to visually distinguish what is too far off the grid uh, yep. for most for most purposes. Um, 
and and especially if you're working under somebody, you're gonna develop like a uh, a sense of how much you can get away with with that particular producer. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of like going back to all the all the mixing stuff. It's just like whatever you can do to stop tricking yourself, the better because that's just wasting time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so if you're if you're editing to the grid, um, maybe don't be so crazy about making sure that every transient marker is exactly on a transient. I know that's something that I used to do, just like go crazy OCD with like editing and making sure that like if somebody said I want the drums gridded, I was going to make sure that like you could program drums to it and they would be like phase aligned to to my edits. And that may be a little bit too much because I don't think most people expect that level of perfection. Uh, And it ultimately to the ears, it doesn't really benefit uh, in most cases. I guess the exception would be in some, in a section where you know that it's going to be layered with program drums, um, in which case it's probably a good idea to get it as gridded as possible and, and spend a little extra time doing that um, just to make it easier on the producer or whoever you're working for. Um, but the, I guess another part of it would be the um, all the shortcut stuff, and I've, I've kind of covered some of that in the fast track, but... Um, just goes, oh, yeah. goes to say, like, if you can, and it goes along with the, the systematic thing, too, is breaking breaking your actions down into smaller components of, like, once you edit a few songs and drums, you will start to recognize the patterns in the keystrokes that you make, and you will find yourself, you will find yourself doing repetitive things, and it's your job to kind of recognize those repetitive things and then figure out how do I get the computer to do that for me. Um, or how do I turn these four button presses into one button press? And um, that's another benefit of being able to kind of think like a computer um, is breaking these tasks down into repeatable, automatable steps um, and then using something like Quick Keys or uh, Keyboard Maestro to program that in. Um, and I know that's, that, that can be a tough thing for some people to, to think in that manner of like... Uh, I need Pro Tools to do this for me. So how do I hack that into Pro Tools? Uh, and you know, like I'm I'm talking about stuff like okay, how do I get the mouse to click in a certain spot on the screen? Or like I I, I do crazy stuff like um, Keyboard Maestro will recognize where the nudge val or like where the nudge thing is in Pro Tools on the screen through image detection, and then click there. And then type in something for me, and then hit enter, and then like nudge something, and then change the nudge again. So it's like all these little things that um, I figured out how to trick Pro Tools into doing for me. Um, and I guess my inspiration for that kind of came from from a couple things. One was uh, watching um, this guy named Sean Coleman, who is the uh, sound effects guy or sound designer for some Adult Swim shows. Um, and I watched him placing sound effects on, uh, on, uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force and, and Squidbillies. Um, and it just boggled my mind how fast he was moving, like automating like little pieces of dialogue and just like blazing. Yeah. Blazing. And, and the other experience was, um, watching, uh, so I had a session with, um, I was I was the assistant on a Buster Rhyme session, and he was trying out a new engineer for the first time, and so he was really trying to push this guy to see if he could keep up with him. Um, 
so he would he would do stuff like uh, you know he so Bust would be sitting behind the table with a mic in front of him, He'd be like okay go, and he'd have headphones on. The engineer would have have headphones on, hit record, and Bust would be like okay do it again do it again. So like every time you say do it again, the engineers expected expected to like create a new playlist, go back to the start, hit record, and you know like keep up with all this stuff and if he says yeah keep that one uh move it to the main playlist and he was doing this way faster than i could do anything in pro tools like i was just like putting myself in my in those shoes like oh shit if i got asked to do something for that i would be i'd be out (laughs) of my ass so um you know i just i need to up my game and the same same experience watching the adult swim guy was just like wow okay there there's there's another level here beyond just um knowing the shortcuts uh you can actually build like with with these macros it's kind of like building new features into pro tools like you you decide what it is that you're missing and then try and see how you can cobble together some kind of solution to uh make your time more efficient so it, that's kind of um a, a broad view of it um but um yeah, I, I, I guess just try and be mindful of anything that you find yourself doing over and over and try and make it repeatable. Maybe we should make a fast track just on that. You could. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure how to teach um, thinking like a programmer, but it definitely can be done. Um, and I, I feel like that's what it is, is, you know, I, I had a ver- very early introduction um, to like basic pro- programming languages when I was a kid. And I've kind of just, that's always uh, seemed, I don't know, it, it, the machine language kind of always just kind of made made sense to me of like, this is how much you have to break a task down in order to get the computer to do it for you. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, that'd be... It's great stuff. Yeah, that'd be something to explore for sure. I mean, being able to think like that and understand... I mean, the fact that we're using computers so much in audio production, like, I think it makes it that much more important for people to understand what's going on under the hood of these computers so that if you run into some kind of technical issue, you don't, you know, your session doesn't grind to a halt. You can just, you know... The idea, the ideal is that nobody ever knows that anything wrong ever happened you know that's what that's what they tell you in like the commercial studio is like the client should never know that there was a problem like if you see a problem happen you should just be able to fix it without them noticing it you know so that's the goal it's a good goal um so final questions from diego casillas which is do you have any contingency plan for times when your standard drum editing flow doesn't obtain the results you want like any alternate workflow or tricks hmm um, I guess usually my kind of backup for drum editing is is usually when um, I find myself constantly like stretching in between hits because the drummer was rushing everything or dragging everything. I guess rushing everything would be more common. Um, yeah, so if I find myself like there's, you know, a bunch of kick hits in a row and I find myself having to like uh, stretch out each individual kick hit manually to try to get the artifacts to go away, then I might switch to elastic audio and kind of compromise some of my phase coherency for being able to get through the close mics mm-hmm. quicker. Um, 
you know, in, in that sort of a situation, I wouldn't really expect to be able to use the close mics for the main part of the sound if you're editing them that much anyway. So it's like, just do whatever you can to get the overheads in the room sounding as good as you can and then move on. Um, beyond that, I guess, you know, always be aware of what you can copy paste. I mean, there's, uh, you know, once you understand uh, the the whole bleed concept of like, you know, you have to match the bleed from one part in order to copy paste something. Um, you can get away with some creative edits, especially if there's a kick pad. Um, you know, that's one less element you have to make sure matches from one part to another. But um, yeah, if you, you can get pretty creative with uh, like, oh, there's, I have one crash followed by a snare followed by a ride hit. And I can't quite get it edited right, so let's see if I can find a crash followed by a snare followed by a ride hit somewhere else in the song. Um, just being aware of that kind of stuff um, so you don't get stuck. Um, aside from that, I don't know what else you could do, really. Well, that kind of stuff does come from just having a lot of experience, too. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you're at the level with your edits where you hit these brick walls, and you just don't know what to do, it means that you probably haven't edited drums enough. And yeah. you need to just try, just keep going, keep trying to get better. Maybe get some one-on-ones with John and talk about drum editing. Just like keep working on your skills because I have never had an experience with John where I have sent him something and I have sent him some fucked up tracks. Like, do you remember... There was we did this one song uh, from this guy. I think he was in Canada, where like he recorded guitars and something. But like we had to basic you basically glued it all together into a song, but like it didn't exist originally. <laughs> like it, I may have it was that so out of my mind. Cra- <laughs> it was so crazy. They were like the worst tracks I have ever heard in my entire life. Like I. I couldn't believe what you turned it into. <laughs> like I, I, what I'm saying is, there's never been a situation where you s- said, "I can't fix this." And yeah, I, I think that's probably true of most cases. Is there, there's usually some yeah. solution. Um, yeah, it so may not, be, not, may not be pretty, but it, you can get it done. Yeah, exactly. So if you're hitting walls and don't know what to do, it means you need to edit more stuff and just yeah, work there's, on there's, it more. There's no rules. I mean. Um, if you if you find yourself hitting a wall of like I can't make this not sound terrible, just try something you haven't tried before. If you, if you're not using Elastic Audio, try Elastic Audio. If you haven't tried, you know, like splitting a beat up and then moving it slightly over and then filling in the space such that the waveform is still continuous. Um, say on like a, a kick or a tom where those low frequencies can create uh, little blips when if you don't if you're not careful with your crossfades. Um, you know, you can really stretch out some stuff, even without elastic audio. You can really make some drum hits obscenely longer than they they used to be, just by being careful with, uh, you know, way the, the waveform and phase and zooming in really close and being precise about it. Um, and there's nothing worse than being sent edited drums that have like a little blip of the snare, like. 50 milliseconds before the actual snare hit. Like, I've gotten some Mm -hmm. messed up stuff like that, and you don't want to be that guy. Like, you don't want to be the engineer who's known for turning in drums that have, like, really bad edits. Um, Because there are (laughs) dudes like that. 
That's why you hire people like John. So, all right, man. Thank you so much for everything you do and coming on the podcast again. Well, thank you for having me, it's man. Been it's, awesome. been, it's been a blast. Yeah. And, um, yeah, man, I'm really excited about URM and the future of this company because it's, uh, you know, people it's are learning times. stuff. And, yeah, man, it's, it's, really, it's really rewarding to be able to help people on their journey. Um, and it, it, it helps me, too. You know, it's helping me along on my journey as well. So thanks. I, yeah, it's, it's weird. I never, you know, I never foresaw this being the direction my life would take. And I never thought, I never like thought about how helping people's lives transform would actually be such a cool thing, but it really is. It's fucking oh, awesome. Yeah. 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 And like everybody says, I mean, if I, if only I had this stuff when in the early two thousands, uh, who knows where we'd be. Oh yeah. So yeah, man. Right on. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. I'll see you around. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.